0: Welcome to this week's episode of the Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from Stat. I'm Damien Garde,
1: social distancing from the borough of Queens. I'm Adam Feuerstein, sitting here in Cambridge, Massachusetts.
2: And I'm Rebecca Robbins, still staying home in the San Francisco Bay Area.
0: It is Thursday, June 18th, and here's what we're going to talk about this week.
1: First up, we'll bring you a
0: lightning
2: round
1: packed with hot takes on the latest news from the worlds of COVID 19 drug development, health tech, and academic publishing.
2: Next, physician and healthcare policy expert Ezekiel Emanuel will join us to discuss his fear that President Trump will politicize the development of a coronavirus vaccine to try to win re-election.
0: Finally, geneticist Tashaka Cunningham will join us to talk about genetics and racial inequity and what needs to be done to make the field actually reflect the
1: world's diversity.
2: But first, here's a word from our sponsor.
1: Now Nylam Pharmaceuticals has led the translation of the Nobel Prize-winning discovery of RNA interference into an innovative new class of medicines. RNAi Therapeutics treat disease differently than other types of medicines by silencing the expression of the genes that make disease-causing proteins. Our pioneering work has delivered the world's first and only approved RNAi Therapeutics, and we're just getting started. Learn more about how our science is changing the way medicine treats disease at alnylam.com slash stat. That's A-L-N-Y-L-A-M dot com forward slash stat.
0: So let's start this week by running through the biggest news from what has been a busy week in the world of medicine. So first off, we got the results from a major study on treating COVID-19. Adam, what did we learn?
1: Yeah, Damian. So in a trial involving more than 6,000 hospitalized COVID-19 patients, the common steroid dexamethasone reduced the rate of death by about one third. I think that was really resonant for two reasons. One, that's the best mortality
0: result that we've seen from any agent in treating COVID-19. And then two, unlike, for example, remdesivir from Gilead Sciences, which is an investigational drug, dexamethasone exists. It's widely available. It's pretty cheap. It's a steroid that can be used at presumably any hospital
1: around the world. So yeah, and I think it sort of underscores this effort to repurpose existing medicines in the fight against COVID-19.
2: What struck me too about this readout was that this steroid seemed really under the radar. You know, there's been so much attention to uh, potential treatments like hydroxychloroquine and and remdesivir. This one I think uh, might not have been on people's radar uh, and it was encouraging to see these results.
0: The one thing to watch for next is that these results, like so many over these past few months, came to us via a press release that described the top line results from this very large study. The actual detailed data are yet to be published or presented or or really subjected to rigorous vetting by scientists. So all of this comes with the caveat that there may well be something revealed in those details that kind of takes the bloom off the rose with respect to this.
1: So next, uh, this week brought us some diametric fortunes in the world of digital health. On the one hand, we saw a landmark FDA approval for a video game designed to treat ADHD. And then we saw the famed inventor of the digital pill, which won a landmark approval of its own in 2017, file for bankruptcy. Rebecca, is there a lesson to be learned from this coincidence?
2: Yeah, I think these two news items this week really point to how in flux this field is and, and how you know a company that can be kind of at the the top of the world one moment um, can see its fortunes fall. know, I think there are a lot of unanswered questions um, about health tech and and whether there's sort of truly a market for these innovative therapeutics that, you know, function with software rather than uh, traditional medicines. You know, I think people were excited and hopeful that um, Proteus Digital Health's pill that tracks you when you swallow it would find a market, but it turned out it didn't. There wasn't enough demand. And on the flip side, you know, Achille, which just won approval for its therapeutic video game, is going to have to pursue persuade doctors to prescribe it and insurers to pay for it. Uh, And that could be an uphill battle. So it'll be really interesting to watch this play out.
1: All right. So next up, this week saw the biggest IPO in biopharma history. Royalty Pharma raised more than $2 billion and rose to a valuation of more than $25 billion. Damien, what does this mean for the sentiment Mm -hmm. around biotech on Wall Street? So
0: it's undoubtedly positive, but I think it's worth pointing out that Royalty Pharma is, I think, unique uh, in the drug industry in that it doesn't invent any drugs. As its name would suggest, they acquire royalty streams on other people's medicines. And so they basically negotiate paying cash up front for back-end points on the sales of um, what they hope will be blockbuster medicines. And, And to date, they've been around since the 90s. That business model has been very lucrative for them. But it's also, I think, a positive for biotech as a net. Because, you know, with the market saying that Royalty Pharma is worth $25 billion, what they're essentially saying is that that business model, buying into uh, investigational drugs, is something that will continue to be lucrative out into the future. So, in a sense, it's Wall Street making a long-term bet on biotech. And so Royalty Pharma is almost more of like buying into a diversified biotech fund rather than investing in a single biotech IPO. And so I think all of the read throughs, at least in the short term, are positive for the future of the drug industry in the eyes of investors.
1: I think what's interesting about Royalty Pharma is, you know, they've been around for a long time, and I think they were founded in 1996. And, you know, very well established company that a lot of people on Wall Street in the healthcare sphere know well, now they're going to be publicly traded. But for years, you know, they focus mostly on buying, royalty streams from established, approved medicines, and only in the recent years have they gone out and started to sort of buy royalty streams from unapproved drugs. So basically taking a more risky bet that medicines right now in clinical trials will end up being approved. So it'll be interesting to see how that strategy plays out uh, over the next few years. So all
0: around the world, academic institutions are looking at the huge sums of money they pay journal publishers and wondering Why? This week, MIT became the latest institution to walk away from negotiations with Elsevier, a major publisher. Rebecca, what's at stake in this ongoing situation?
2: Yeah, so over the last couple of years, we've seen more and more universities walk away from talks with Elsevier. And their disputes center around the way uh, that universities pay journal publishers like Elsevier uh, both to read their paywalled content and to publish their own research in a way that's accessible to everyone, that's called open access. So far, we have seen Elsevier dig in its heels and and we've seen a number of universities University of California, University of North Carolina, the SUNY system in New York, and now most recently MIT, just refuse to play ball and, and walk away. So I think the stakes are really centered around how academic research gets paid for and, and accessed and read. You know, it's, it's kind of striking to think about, um, you know, as, as journalists, the situation is sort of analogous to if I were to have to pay STAT to publish my writing. You know, Stout would, would just sort of host the article and, and make money, both from people subscribing to read it, but also me paying uh, for them to, to host the piece. And I think that model sounds sort of crazy in, in the context of journalism. Um, and, and more and more universities and academics are thinking, wait, how much value are we really getting here?
0: Yeah, no, it kind of sounds like a protection racket or at best, you know, like Seamless or Uber or companies that function as middlemen. In this process, has anyone kind of stepped forward and proposed an alternative model that these institutions might find more equitable or more practical?
2: So that's really sort of the push toward these kind of transformative open access agreements. University of California just struck a deal with the publisher of the Nature Journals, which was able to uh, hash out a compromise. And so the the question is sort of how do these articles that are in front of paywall get paid for? And it seems that that a deal was able to be reached there. So it may put pressure on Elsevier to strike similar deals uh, with academic, institutions on their terms. devoted a lot of time on this podcast to the ongoing efforts to develop a vaccine or vaccines which aim to protect against infection from the novel coronavirus.
1: There are nearly a dozen such vaccines currently being tested in people. The first results from some of these clinical trials could read out this fall, which has some people hopeful that an effective coronavirus vaccine might be approved and ready for distribution early next
0: year. However, our next guest is not one of those people. Instead, he's concerned that President Trump, desperate for a political boost, could pressure the FDA to approve a vaccine before election day as a sort of October surprise even if that vaccine is not found to be safe and effective.
2: So joining us now to elaborate on this hot take and more is Ezekiel Emanuel. Zeke, as he's known, is a physician and professor of medical ethics at the University of Pennsylvania. He's also a well-known health policy expert, a member of Joe Biden's coronavirus task force, and author of a just-published book titled, Which Country Has the World's Best Healthcare."
3: Zeke, welcome to The Read Out Loud. Ah, it's fun to be here. Thank you for having me.
0: So before we get to the Trump thing, I wanted to first step back from the timeline issue and get your thoughts on the science underlying proposed coronavirus vaccines. How confident are you that one or more of these efforts will actually deliver an effective and safe vaccine?
3: Pretty confident. I think the issue isn't will we get a safe and effective vaccine. We have, depending on how you want to count, four or five different platforms uh, going, everything from inactivated vaccine to live attenuated vaccine uh, to the new RNA, DNA platforms. So I think some platform in there, you know, is going to work. The traditional ones probably have the highest odds. I don't think that's the major hitch. I think the two major hitches are, are we going to get enough protection from infection, not just antibody increase, but actually protection from transmission and the second is, what's the durability of that? Um, and I think both of those are open questions. The durability is a problem because our immune durability from natural coronavirus infections that causes colds is pretty limited, a uh, maximum of 12 months.
2: So historically, vaccines have taken years to develop successfully. In your recent New York Times op-ed, you cited as an example two vaccines against the rotavirus, which secured approvals based on phase three clinical trials that took three to four years to complete. Do you dismiss entirely the idea that coronavirus vaccine development can be accelerated?
3: No, it already is accelerated. But let's get an order of magnitude here. We're going to start phase three effectiveness trials in July, and people want an answer by, call it October, that would be a a mere four months, four months compared to four years. That's not acceleration. That really is warp speed. And I think warp speed is a little unrealistic here. Let's remember, you got to enroll 30,000 people. So they have to meet your inclusion criteria. They have to be in situations where they can get infected by coronavirus Uh, out in the wild, as it were. You then have to wait for them to develop clinical symptoms, confirm that they have infection. Those are non-trivial items.
1: So let's pivot to that Trump thing, which was the main point of your New York Times op-ed. So on a scale of one to 10, Zeke, how likely is the scenario that you described, you know, where Trump essentially forces the government to approve a coronavirus vaccine based on incomplete or immature data just to help him win re-election?
3: Well, let me observe two things. First, we've already had that experience with hydroxychloroquine, where he put extreme pressure on the FDA. And they did. And he got rid of uh, Rick Bright from BARDA, who was reluctant to do the, uh, ask at the FDA for that. And uh, uh, they did declare, you know, uh, hydroxychloroquine useful for COVID-19 based upon an EUA, which they then subsequently had to withdraw. Um, so, you know, you got precedent there. Uh, The second thing is we now just have a book by John Bolton, which says he even went so far as to talk to President Xi of China to uh, see if Xi would uh, help him get reelected and uh, which is a clear violation of the law. Um, So you're asking me, is it it, it, is President Trump willing to try almost anything, including violating American law to get reelected? I don't know. I think the shoe is on the other foot. You have to give me a good reason why not to be suspicious of this.
2: So during a TV interview on Wednesday night, President Trump said the coronavirus outbreak was, quote, dying out, end quote. And he made that statement in response to a question about the rising number of cases being reported in certain states, including Oklahoma, where he is holding a political rally on Saturday. Zeke, what was your reaction to President Trump's statement?
3: Uh, It's just false. It's another one of the many falsehoods he has stated. We have roughly 20,000 cases a day. If you look at the incident, the case incidents has been pretty flat uh, since March. It moves around. It was in New York, New Jersey, Connecticut. It's moved south to Florida, Texas and Arizona, but it hasn't gone away. And this idea, I think the, the White House is trying to uh, jawbone people into eh. The, the virus is now history. Let's move on. Uh, you saw that same sentiment in uh, Governor DeSantis out of Florida. Is we're not turning back. We're just going forward.
1: Eh, well,
3: the virus doesn't listen to political rhetoric. And then there was the second attempt uh, to say, oh, this is just testing. We're testing more, so we're getting more cases. That may be true for a few percentage points. It's not true when your case numbers go up to record levels and jumps of 150% over seven days. So I, I think it just factually incorrect. I don't think I'm the only one who says it's factually incorrect. I think every responsible scientist looking at the data think that's just factually incorrect.
1: So as we mentioned above, you have written a new book. It's called Which Country Has the World's Best Healthcare? So Zeke, what's the answer to that question?
3: You don't think I'd give it to you, Adam. Do you? That that easy? Not not make you work for it? I'm a professor. I like my students to really struggle. I think they retain the information better. But having said that, your uh, listeners would be unsatisfied by that answer. And I think it's very important to understand that it depends what you are looking for in a healthcare system. And I don't think everyone's looking for the same thing. You know, a lot of health policy wants are looking for, you know, cost control and universal coverage. But a lot of Individual people are looking for other things. They, for example, want a place where they have, you know, uh, as wide a choice of doctors and hospitals as possible. Well, if that is your primary concern, you know, Germany, Switzerland, uh, France are, you know, Taiwan are probably your leading countries, uh, and it turns out they have much better choice of doctors and hospitals than we do in the United States, where we're often restricted to, uh, you know, narrow networks or HMOs. If what you want is no co-pays when you go to the doctor or you get admitted to the hospital, you know, that Britain and Canada, Australia, when it comes to public hospitals, they look good. So I think it really does depend upon the set of metrics you're interested in. And I don't think everyone's interested in the same metric. That's why we don't do a ranking in the end. And we look at 22 separate metrics and evaluate countries by those metrics.
2: Well, Zeke, thanks so much for joining us.
3: Thank you. This has been quite enjoyable and uh, tag team by the stat, you know, reporters is like, it's awesome.
2: Next up. We're going to talk about the field of genetics and how it's grappling with deep-seated biases in this current moment of reckoning around racism.
0: So earlier this month at the consumer genetics giant 23andMe, CEO Anne Wojcicki issued a pretty remarkable statement. She called her product, quote, Eurocentric and said her company is, quote, part of the problem. Competitors Ancestry and Nebula Genomics put out their own statements acknowledging similar issues with their own products and with the field at large. Genetics has long been
1: seen as too white in its leadership, its data, and its products. Black individuals and other people of color are underrepresented in genetic studies, databases, and the reference genome. While there's been some halting progress, these problems have resulted in tests that only work for people of European ancestry. They've also undermined hopes that everyone might benefit from personalized medicine.
2: So, joining us to discuss all of this is geneticist Tashaka Cunningham. Tashaka is co founder and chief scientific officer of a genetics startup called True Genomics. He's also executive director of the nonprofit Faith Based Genetic Research Institute. He's previously worked at Bristol-Myers Squibb and the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs.
4: Tashaka, welcome to The Read Out Loud. I'm very glad to be here with you this morning.
1: So, Tashaka, what do you make of the reckoning that we've seen in the past couple of weeks from 23andMe and the other genetics companies on these issues?
4: You know, I think it's actually a a really good thing. And I I was glad to see it from the highest levels uh, from uh, these companies acknowledging an issue uh, that many of us in the research community have known about for a long time which is the sort of lack of representation of diverse genomes in all of our studies and products. And so I'm glad it's starting to get uh, deeper attention because um, I think it is a, a key issue that's going to impact the effectiveness of all of these tools over time. So I was happy to see that admission from 23 me CEO. And I'm looking forward to seeing some positive things that they'll do to address it. Uh, so, you know, the first step is admitting you have a problem. And then, you know, you go through the steps to to rehabilitate. So I'm hoping uh, uh, that some positive things will come out of this.
2: So Tashaka, in your role at the Faith-Based Genetic Research Institute, you travel widely to speak at Black churches about the value of genetic research, or at least you used to in the pre-COVID era. What kinds of questions about genetics do you hear from these communities?
4: All kinds of questions. And first of all, I say, you know, the work that we're doing with uh, the Faith-Based Genetic Research Institute is very unique in that we are bringing together um, individuals from, you know, the faith communities with scientists who are also people of color. One of our guiding principles in, in the work that we do in the community is called the honest broker philosophy. That is, Those of us who are imparting the information to the community are also from the community. And what we found is that really helps us establish a better bond of trust for folks to be able to receive the information. So some of the questions that we get uh, when we talk about the value and the benefits of genetic research is is the first questions are, are they going to use it to hurt me? And, you know, what will they do with the information? There's a fair bit of distrust uh, out there, and some of it is, you know, quite warranted from from past uh, sort of transgressions of the medical establishment on the African American community. But once you sort of talk through the, those issues with folks uh, and really kind of allow them to see some of the potential benefits, then you start getting a high level of interest.
0: So let's say Twenty Three and Me, for example, or one of the large companies, were to call you and ask for advice on what to do to make their products less Eurocentric and more inclusive, what would you tell them?
4: Similar to to what I mentioned in a recent article was, uh, you know, start by making sure that your team, your executive team specifically, is representative of the community. For me as an African-American, I would have been more encouraged if I had seen more African-Americans on the leadership side. And I think those in the African-American community who aren't scientists like myself, who wouldn't, you know, maybe naturally gravitate towards it, would feel more of a connection to a company that looked reflective. And there are many of them out there. I mean, a lot of companies sort of say, oh, we can't find them. Any company needing to find a talented minority geneticist, give me a call. I've got a long list. OK. And then the second step would be to really sponsor more research in this area. I mean, part of the challenge is also a financial and economic challenge. Um, When you think about the economic disparities that have existed in America based on racial lines, you know, the average African-American has seven times less wealth than the average Caucasian. So they might not have, you know, even 100 bucks to spend on something like genetic testing that could benefit them. And then there's also the messaging. I think if to the extent that these companies could help organizations like ours, the Faith-Based Genetic Research Institute, other academic institutions with messaging about the sort of the the importance or the, the potential benefits of this, that would be great. Now I know that's a fine line that they have to walk, because um you don't you don't want to seem coercive, but at the same time, I think trying to really do authentic outreach to the community would start with having more of your employees be from the community and then having a dedicated effort of that kind of outreach within your operation.
1: One of the more controversial questions in this conversation is around compensation. Do you think that twenty three and me? should pay people in the black community uh, and other underrepresented populations for their data?
4: I believe anybody that contributes uh, their data should have the opportunity to get paid for it if it's used. I do not believe in coercing someone to contribute their data with payment, okay? That's a, that's a fine line I think you cross in terms of ethics. But if I'm an individual that has contributed and then you go and use my data, uh, let's say a pharma company buys access to my data, and I don't see any benefit from it, to me, that feels a bit un-American. And I just don't feel like it's fair. Um, But that's my personal opinion.
2: So let's talk a little bit about polygenic risk score tests, which really encapsulate the diversity problems in genetics. So for listeners who are unfamiliar, these are tests that gather multiple genetic variants together and, and use them to predict someone's chances of developing a disease. So far, many commercial polygenic risk score tests have come with warnings that they're not very accurate or are even useless in people who are not of European ancestry. But Tashaka, your startup, True Genomics, is working on a polygenic risk score test to try to gauge risk for developing PTSD. And you're trying to build the test using more diverse data. Tell us about your approach.
4: Yeah, I mean, I I recognize that the importance of diversity in your data sets. uh, From my earliest days, when I was at the Department of Veterans Affairs, we had a large genomics project uh, called, that's still ongoing, called the Million Veteran Program. And uh, part of my contribution to that project was to make sure that minority veterans participated um, and so we actually went through great efforts to to ensure that and that project has done very well uh, to the credit of the VA to recruit minority veterans so that data set has the potential to uh, provide rich understanding and polygenic risk for minority communities. Our approach was exactly the same. I took some of what I learned from having to really uh, take the time to do the outreach to the communities um, to make sure that end products are representative that is just core to our actual DNA as a company. I think part of that has to do uh, with the fact that we're one of the the very few uh, minority-owned genomics companies in the country right now. So this was top of mind for us. We wanted to make sure that whatever products we were putting out, the polygenic risk uh, related to all communities, uh, specifically the African-American community, which my founders and I uh, come from. So I, it was just a very important thing for us to do. As a scientist, I don't believe in putting out you know uh, products that aren't broadly applicable to all communities.
0: So why haven't other makers of polygenic risk score tests taken this more holistic
4: approach? You know, I, I can't speak for them. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> I, and I, that's a question that I have. I would hope that they, they take a deeper look at it. I mean, maybe, you know, their their market calculations were, okay, the people using genetic tests now uh, tend not to be people of color, and, and therefore we don't need to care about them. I don't know. All I could say is that I hope that all of the companies that are making these kinds of tests, you know, really take diversity seriously, because the, the truth of it is the majority of the DNA in the world is not of Caucasian origin. It's actually of Asian origin and then African and Latino, right? (laughs) And then Caucasians are only maybe about 14% of all the DNA out there just based on population, right? So when you think about it in that respect, if you really want to have uh, genomics globally applicable, uh, then you really need to focus on its diversity.
1: Shaka, thank you for coming on the podcast today. Okay,
4: great. It's great being with you all today.
2: That does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Thank you to Hyacinth
1: Empanado and Teresa Gaffney who produced this week's episode. Alyssa Ambrose is our senior producer and Rick Burke is our executive producer.
2: And as always, we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you liked about this week's episode, what you didn't like, and which guests we should consider inviting on the show in the future. You can do all of that by sending us an email at readoutloud@statnews.com. at
0: And as always, if you like what we do, please leave a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use
1: to get your podcasts. See you next week.